Open God's holy word to the 25th Psalm. The 25th Psalm. To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And He teaches the humble His way. All the paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear Him, and He makes known his, to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, for the sake of your name, forgive us our sins. Have mercy on our souls now. Father, for those who are attacked in some way for their faithfulness to you, I pray that they will cry out to you with renewed confidence. Father, for all of us, guide us in your ways that we may live dependently unto you. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. This psalm is a bit like a Neapolitan or Spumone ice cream. One of those where the flavors are distinct but marbled up. 
The various flavors that dominate this psalm are deliverance, forgiveness, guidance, and trust. Bite into this psalm anywhere, and one of those psalms, one of those flavors might be a bit stronger than the others, but it's never alone. They're, they're always mixed. Add to this, in this psalm, we have not only petitions regarding these things, we have meditations on these things. And that's the element that's going to give some structure to the psalm as we proceed forward. In verses 1 through 7, David speaks to God. In verses 8 through 15, he speaks of God. And then again in verses 16 through 22, he speaks to God. So petition, meditation, petition. And then further adding to the complexity of the psalm, it's also an acrostic with 22, letter, 22 verses for the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. More of that later. One more thing, though, in, in how this psalm stands out from everywhere we've been before in the Psalter. Of the 25 psalms we've covered, every one of them is a psalm of David. But the typological factor has been emphatic in every one of the other psalms. And this is what I mean. In every one of the psalms, it's really clear that David is anticipating Christ. The exception so far has been the 23rd psalm, where David speaks of Yahweh as his shepherd. And there it's not so much that David anticipates as that he cries out to the Christ. Well, in this psalm, you have a bit of both. You see, the reason why this psalm stands out is because this is the first instance, it's not the only one that you see in the psalms. This is the first time we've run across a strong theme of seeking God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. This is the first time we've seen the penitent David come to the fore. We've seen David cry out for God's grace and mercy, but this is the first one where this note of penitence and repentance before y'all... Let me erase penitence and just say repentance. It's the first time we've seen a strong element of repentance in the Psalter. And so whenever I say that the others have been highly typological, let me explain that. Whenever we speak of typology, David as a type of Christ or, or some other figure, have in mind that ancient invention, the typewriter. And the metal engraving that strikes the inked type onto the paper is known as the antitype. So Jesus is the antitype. David is a type. The antitype exists first, and the type is an impression, a copy of the type, yet lesser than it. And so it is with David is this anticipation of the one who is to come, his greater son who yet exists before him. And so in this psalm, you have both David repentant, crying out for mercy, and yet also you'll see anticipating Christ. Both elements are here. So what we saw in the 23rd Psalm and what we've seen in the rest of these, both elements are in this. David both anticipates the Christ as a type and he anticipates the Christ in his need for one through whom he will find forgiveness. And so with all that 
prep work laid, I think we're ready to bite into this psalm and taste and see that the Lord is good. David's prayer opens with this petition for deliverance, verses 1 and 2. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So deliverance is the dominant flavor throughout this psalm to which all the others are connected. Whatever other flavor you're tasting in each bite, this one is there, at least a hint of it is there. David prays for guidance and he asks for forgiveness because of this occasion of his enemies attacking him. This is the setting that is causing David to cry out not only for deliverance, but forgiveness and guidance. And this plea for deliverance is encapsulated in that fourth element we talked about, trust. Trust just runs throughout all these others. He lifts up his soul to Yahweh, meaning he puts his trust in Yahweh. Then we have the petition, and then in verse 3 again, this confidence or this faith and trust in Yahweh is expressed. None who wait, that is none who trust, who lift up their soul to Yahweh, will be put to shame. If David is defeated by his enemies, if his enemies exult over him, it would mean David being put to shame, and if David is put to shame, the one in whom he trusts would be put to shame. Shame is not the lot of God, and thus those who trust Him. Shame is the portion of those who are treacherous. The word in the original language has the ideas of those who betray, those who break covenant. This word is used for those who commit adultery. Treacherous. You remember in the previous psalm, David spoke of not lifting up his soul to what is false? The person who will sin before the Lord is those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. That's the person who breaks covenant, who is treacherous, who worships an idol. David, however, lifts up his soul to Yahweh. Next, David asks for guidance, verses 4 and 5. In afflictions, specifically those in which you are attacked for faithfulness to your Lord, do you pray for guidance? And before you quickly answer, well, of course, I want to get through it. Let's be clear as to what kind of guidance is in view here. The modern notion of guidance that dominates both the evangelical and charismatic worlds is not what is presented here. The predominant idea of guidance is crippling for walking the paths of Yahweh. Rather than a light to our feet, it's a sledge to our knees, albeit with a high dose of morphine of some kind of euphoric experience to make us think otherwise. The modern idea of guidance is experiential and subjective. It centers on feelings and our interpretation of our circumstances. In contrast, notice how the psalm speaks of guidance. Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me. Ways, paths, truth. What's... what's 
the psalmist getting at with this language. If you're unclear, spend this afternoon reading the 119th Psalm. And there you will see God's Word, the Scriptures, His truth, His testimonies, His statutes, His ways, His paths, His guidance, all spoken of. Those are all synonymous in the same way over and over again, making clear. How does God guide us? By His Word. Into what does He guide us? Righteousness. Holiness. Obedience unto Him. God's providence guides your life in every way. And that kind of guidance related to His providence, you are simply to trust, not understand, not figure out. The guidance that's for you to know is to obey His commands, His law, His word. We should not look for a word over or outside the word to guide us. We should not look for a word alongside or with or through the Word to guide us. We simply look to the Word, and what it tells us to do, we do. Kevin DeYoung warns that when seeking guidance, we should stop thinking of God's will like a corn maze or a tightrope or a bullseye or a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Such an approach is akin to the prosperity gospel. DeYoung goes on to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 5, 16 through 18 to sum up what the will of God is for His people, saying, In short, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. So go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future and for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 This is the will of God, your sanctification. Chapter 5, he fills out another aspect. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you see how liberating such an approach is? The young continues, The only chains God wants us to wear are the chains of righteousness. Not the chains of hopeless subjectivism, not the shackles of risk-free living, not the fetters of horoscope decision-making, just the chains befitting a bondservant of, Je- of Christ Jesus. Die to self, live for Christ, and then do what you want, go where you want for God's glory. Be amiss not to mention the text that speaks into this most potently. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to Yahweh. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we may do all the words of this law. So let's return to the question now. Whenever affliction, whenever you're attacked, 
whenever you're troubled, do you pray for guidance? Do you pray for the Spirit of God to teach you the truths of God in the inner man so that you want to walk the path of obedience with a heart unto the Lord? Or is your concern simply to get out of the storm as quickly as possible? We often pray for the wrong kind of guidance because we don't want the right kind. We don't want to walk the path of righteousness. We just want to get back to our ease and comfort. Especially whenever the righteousness was the cause of the affliction in the first place. But even so, praise be to our good God that He often uses the affliction to cause us to seek this kind of guidance. The psalmist cried out in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And the final plea in this first scoop has most prominent this forgiveness flavor, verses 7 and 8. Remember not the sins of my youth. Well, let me, let me back up. Verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Remember, not remember, remember. And do you see how these are all the same plea? He wants him to remember his mercy, his unfailing covenant love, that, that rich word that we've talked about before, Hesed is there, that unfailing covenant love. And to remember him and to not remember his sins. You see, if he remembers mercy, it means him not remembering his sins. If he, remember, if he doesn't remember his sins, it means him remembering mercy. This is all one plea. And in this, David is crying out to God on the basis of God. William Plummer wisely counsels, arguments drawn from God's character in favor of our cause are far more likely to prevail than those drawn from our own character. David's been doing this all along, have you noticed? He prays for deliverance knowing that those who trust Yahweh, verse 3, will not be put to shame. He prays for guidance because, verse 5, Yahweh is the God of His salvation. He prays for mercy because God's mercy, verse 6, has been from of old, and now He prays to be remembered. Remember me for the sake of your goodness. Not my goodness, but for the sake of your goodness. And the rich meaning of that will become clear in this next section. As David turns from speaking to God, of God. And do you see why, why if David is praying to God upon the basis of who God is, while it's so appropriate that he turn from petition to meditation. If he's praying to God on the basis of who God is, it's appropriate that he turn from petition to God to meditation on God. And that in this, David has not turned completely from prayer is evident in that the central petition of this psalm 
is in the middle of the meditation portion. The central prayer, verse 11, is in the middle of everything else that is meditation. Meditation and prayer are to be wed together. John Owen writes, Meditate of God with God. That is, when we would undertake thoughts and meditations of God, His excellencies, His properties, His glory, His majesty, His love, His goodness, let it be done in a way of speaking unto God in a deep humiliation and abasement of our souls before Him. This will fix the mind and draw it forth from one thing to another to give glory unto God in a due manner and affect the soul until it be brought into that holy admiration of God and delight in Him which is acceptable unto Him. My meaning is this, that it, meditation, be done in a way of prayer and praise, speaking unto God. If you want to pray more God-centered prayers, stop praying and start reading prayerfully. Petition less. Meditate more. Otherwise, I venture that your petitions are going to be very selfish. If your theology is scanty, you may pray much, but you will not pray deep. Weak theology, weak biblical understanding produces weak prayers. You'll find yourself to be praying more falsely than truly, more carnally than spiritually, more detrimentally than effectually, and more idolatrously than worshipfully if your prayers are not shaped and guided by the Word of God. The first part of David's meditation concerns guidance in relation to God's goodness and uprightness, verse 8. Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. And in relation to His covenant love and faithfulness, that as you walk this path, path, keeping covenant, keeping His testimonies. That path is His very steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's to humble sinners that this guidance comes. He instructs sinners in the way. Only sinners can be guided into righteousness. How does this aspect of knowing where sinners come across, it's It's to those who are, verse 9, humble that He leads in what is right and teaches His way. All our righteousness, all of our obedience unto God, do you see here it's a gift? He guides. He teaches. He leads. Don't think that just because we've clarified that guidance means understanding what His will is for you, don't think that it's simply a matter of reading the Bible, finding what it is, and doing it. You must come prayerfully. You must come humbly. You must come dependently, seeking for Him to lead and guide you into His truths. Otherwise, 
your attempt to walk the path of righteousness is an expression of self-righteousness. And it falls off the way. And then it is right here, seemed so perfectly, right here in the middle of this meditation, at this point, comes this climactic plea. For your namesake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Deliverance is the dominant plea of this petition. But the central and climactic petition is for forgiveness. And upon what basis does David plead for it? For your name's sake. Remember earlier, he'd asked, remember covenant. Remember your steadfast love. Remember mercy. Don't remember my sin. Remember me for your goodness sake. And now he's praying, forgive me for your name's sake. Mercy, love, forgiveness. These are all the very meaning of God's name. Moses received that high honor of having God show him his glory. And the showing of his glory was the revealing of his name. As Yahweh declared to him, this is my name, I'll proclaim my name unto you. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the full definition of God's name becomes manifest in His Son, Jesus, Yahshua, Yahweh, saves. God's aim in the salvation of sinners is the magnifying of His name. Paul wrote, in love, He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in His Beloved. To the praise of His grace is equal to the praise of His name. His name means He's gracious. And that means the magnifying of the beloved in whom we are adopted. The name of Christ, that that name might be exalted above all. Forgive my sins for your namesake. And that kind of plea comes right in the middle of this meditation on God. If you're not meditating on God, you won't pray this way. Do your prayers, even your seemingly humble prayers for forgiveness, demonstrate more self-concern or Christ-concern? When you cry out for forgiveness, is it that you're longing for the name of Christ to be exalted? Or you just want to escape any penalty, any discipline, any distance, any bad feelings that might come about because of it? When you ask God to forgive you, is it really just another expression of idolatry? Meditation on God 
is a way of keeping our prayer on the path of righteousness. John Piper in an interview once stated, The word and prayer to me are constantly interwoven. I don't read the Bible longer than a minute without praying, and I don't pray longer than a minute without some scripture on my mind. If I start churning out prayers that aren't informed pretty explicitly by the Bible, I'm probably going to wind up praying carnal prayers. And if I tried to read the Bible extensively without constantly sending my heart up to God, it will become an academic exercise that doesn't move my heart. Left to ourselves, we don't pray this way. We need God's Word to guide us. And often, it's affliction that drives us to such meditation, to petition in such a Christ-magnifying way. Meditate on texts like Ephesians 1, and you'll find yourself praying. Forgive my sins for your namesake. Following this, the meditation that comes in the following verses 12 through 15 picks up the same idea, but looks at him from a different angle. Rather than from God down, it looks at him from man up. Speaking of the one who fears Yahweh, the one who fears Yahweh, verse 12, is instructed in the way he should choose. He is blessed and receives the promised inheritance, verse 13. Verse 14, he enjoys fellowship with Christ, understanding of God's covenant. And this meditation scoop ends, verse 15, with David expressing trust. It went from him stating these principles to him making application. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Now in the final section... The psalm ends with plea after plea after plea for deliverance, but with all the previous flavors still there. First, David asks God to turn to him and be gracious to him, verse 16. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Others are turning away from David. He's asking God to turn to him. Relating this to the previous plea that God act for his namesake, William Plummer writes, the more lowly and lonely our state, the more earnestly we should commit it to God, for the more glorious will it be for Him to interpose. Deliverance is the clear emphasis of 17 through 20, and even so, do you note that in the midst of it, He cries out, forgive all my sins. He asked God to consider his afflictions, verse 18, to consider his enemies, verse 19, to guard him, not allow him to be put to shame, verse 20. And you note how this flavor of grace is still throughout here. He's seeking forgiveness. He's asking God to be gracious. This isn't something he thinks he's merited or earned. And that's very important so that you don't misunderstand verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now, is that intention with everything else here that we've seen? Integrity and uprightness? One way to resolve the felt contradiction is to, as some have said, say that the integrity and uprightness here are God's. May your integrity and uprightness preserve me. May your covenant faithfulness keep me. But the rest of the Psalms won't let you read it this way. Psalm 
7-8, David says, Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Psalm 41-12, David says, You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence. You see, upheld me being the same idea of preserve. In the next Psalm, 26, verse 1, He will plead, Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. And then in verse 11 he says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Do you see what David did in that last example? I shall walk in my integrity. Be gracious to me. He doesn't see these things as, as though they couldn't be in the same verse. He's not understanding any contradiction there. And do you remember, David's already set it up. So if David is walking in the path of righteousness, why is he doing so? Because of God's goodness and God's mercy and God's love. And so he's appealing to God on the basis of God's work in him and all his walking this path is an expression of his trusting Yahweh. How does James say that we see our faith? Our theology comes out our fingertips, and whatever comes out our fingertips is our theology, as Wilson says. We show our faith by our works. His obedience is not his faith, but it is the evidence of his faith, that he trusts Yahweh. And as he's walking this path, he knows that those who trust in Yahweh will not be put to shame. They'll be preserved. Now, while verse 21 may feel contradictory, verse 22 is meant to feel out of place. Again, this psalm is an acrostic. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses, but they don't match up perfectly. It's not a perfect acrostic. There are some variations. There, one pair of letters is switched. In another instance, a letter is repeated twice, right, one right after another. And because of this, some letters are missing because there's another instance of a letter being repeated, but it's not one following the other, so that kind of makes sense. The letter that this ends with in verse 22 is the one that we have in verse 16. And so it's, it feels out of place, and it's meant to. I don't think this is an accident or a mistake or some kind of scribal error of some sort. Because all this prayer is very personal. And then at the very end, it's communal. It's meant to feel different. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. It feels different. It looks different. But it's meant to be in the psalm. If David is put to shame, so is Israel. If David is not forgiven... That spells disaster, not just for him, but for the nation. If David is not guided, this is a judgment on the entire nation. You see, our salvation doesn't ultimately, at the base level, the reason for it, doesn't reside in us. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. 
You see, David anticipates this as being a kind of federal head. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. David, being a type of Christ, is not negated by his being a sinner in need of Christ. So he's both anticipating Christ and yet in this element here, as it's connected to the rest of the psalm, his needing to be delivered and guided is necessary for the salvation of God's people. And know this, Christ is greater than David at his best. And without the slightest inkling of any of his faults, even the least of them. And if you are saved, he is your king. When you are afflicted, when you're convicted of sin, whenever you're hungry for righteousness, whenever you cry out to God for deliverance and guidance and forgiveness, know this, your king was afflicted as you never will be. Not only did his enemies surround him, they were let loose to have their way with him. And not only that, he bore the wrath of God, but not because he strayed from the path of righteousness, but because we did. He perfectly walked in humble dependence upon God, relying upon the Spirit. He perfectly walked the path of obedience even to the cross so that we might be forgiven. And then... He was delivered as He rose our triumphant King to sit at the right hand of the Father and also as our great High Priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses so that our prayers for guidance, deliverance, and forgiveness most assuredly will be heard and you can pray in faith knowing that upon the basis of who God is in Christ. Only because of the one David was anticipating could David pray in this way. Only because of the one David anticipated the Christ can we pray in faith for deliverance, guidance, and forgiveness. Knowing that for the sake of His name, He will redeem Israel out of all our troubles. Praise be to the name of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we pray in this way for the glory of that name from whom every spiritual blessing comes and whom your every promise is yes and amen. Magnify Him in us. Deliver us. Guide us. Forgive us. For the sake of His name. Amen.